This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 567 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Doug Mitchell and Dan Shaw. So we discuss a host of topics from mentoring members of the community to become great firefighter candidates, the importance of raising the bar on probation, the role of the senior man, physical fitness, mental health, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Doug Mitchell and Dan Shaw. Enjoy. Well, Doug and Dan, I want to start by welcoming you both on the Behind the Shield podcast. I know this is a long time coming. I think it started with uh, Billy um, calling you, Doug, about, God, it's got to be probably almost two years ago now, but I'm so glad that we we're finally able to get this conversation going. Likewise. Okay. Yeah, James, thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, come on your show and talk. 
So uh, we will start with uh, you, Doug. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Um, I live about 60 miles north of New York City in a very small town called Washingtonville, New York. Actually, uh, Washingtonville, New York is famous for a few things, uh, including in the fire service. Uh, Dennis Smith lived in Washingtonville, New York, uh, when he wrote his book, Report from Engine Company 82. And unfortunately, I, we found out uh, just a few days ago that uh, Dennis Smith passed away. Uh, certainly an influential uh, person in the fire service for many. Um, but I grew up in a small town that was filled with uh, cops and firemen, um, kind of transition from a um, farming community to a basically a bedroom community uh, for New York City civil servants. Uh, my neighborhood was basically cop, fireman, bell telephone, cop, fireman, bell telephone. Uh, would throw in a sanitation guy every you know, down the block. Uh, um, but that's that's pretty much it. And that's I've, I wound up kind of. When I came back to the fire department, I wound up kind of circling back and um, wound up buying a house and living and raising my family um, in the same town. Beautiful. Well, I'll stay with you for a moment, Doug, and then Dan and walk you through the same kind of questions. So um, when you were school age, kind of what, what were you playing? What was your kind of athletic level at that point? I pretty much played every sport, um, kind of a jack of all trades, master of none. Um, I didn't really find my true passion until probably later into high, high school uh, when a bunch of us uh, kind of got involved in ice hockey. Uh, that kind of drove me through the last two years of high school um, into college where I played some club hockey uh, and then kind of continued that on throughout my adult life. Um, skiing, too, was kind of big. Um, I, I enjoyed uh, doing some club skiing uh, in high school and even elementary school. Um, and that's another sport that's kind of stayed with me. But I, I, I dabbled in every sport kind of as a kid growing up. You know, in the spring, it was baseball season. And uh, in the summer, in the fall, it was soccer season. Uh, in the winter, it was basketball. So I kind of dabbled around in all the sports. I think my parents wanted to try to give me an opportunity to to see what I was good at, and I really wasn't good at any of them. <laughs> well, all the uh, the coaches I've had on, and, and you know, some of the orthopedics, and any any expert in the kind of wellness area, a common theme seems to be to create a good athlete and to create a resilient athlete is the multi sport element, and what they're seeing with a lot of this single sport travel ball kind of you know living vicariously through your child philosophy that we're seeing with some people is causing a lot of these these kind of childhood uh, injuries that then sadly seem to stop people's exercise and sport journey at the kind of high school or college level. Yeah, it's become a business. And, you know, unfortunately, money ruins a lot of things. And, uh, you know, again, I have three children of my own, and I'm not going to lie to you that they have they gravitated towards certain sport. And some coach came up to you and said, hey, I think your kid's really, really good. And they should do this travel program. And it just means you travel, your hand travels to your wallet twice as frequently as your local sports. And I think there's certainly something to be said for local sports. And listen, everyone thinks their kids are, are, are good athletes and, and you want to you wanna give them the best opportunities. But not every kid should be playing travel sports. And I think you're right. And, and I think the, the doctors and the science, you know, again, over the long term, I think you'll find that a well-rounded athlete it does make a good athlete and it does make a better and a healthier individual uh, in life, uh, for sure. All right. Well, Dan, so we're going to bring you to the same point. So firstly, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? 
Uh, I am just outside of Baltimore, Maryland, where I'm born and raised, a little community called Catonsville, just about probably uh, three miles from the city line in the southwest corner of Baltimore County, which surrounds all Baltimore City. Beautiful. And then what about you? Where were you born? And tell me a little bit about your family dynamic. Okay. Uh, born and raised in Baltimore, um, you know, a t- typical Sicilian Irish uh, immigrant family. They uh, all ended up in Baltimore, Maryland. And, uh, you know, my formative years mostly were once my grandmother, who uh, ran a Palmasano fruit company, which was in Baltimore City. Uh, they used eminent domain to kick her out to essentially build uh, where Camden Yards is. Um, and then we moved to the suburbs. And then uh, I was fortunate. Uh, my parents, who are still married and are in their 55th year of marriage. Wow. Uh, and was fortunate to uh, be raised in the area where I live now with three outstanding brothers. Um, and honestly, when I went to Fairfax, where I worked, it was probably the first time I really drove to Virginia for anything other than going on a family vacation just to pass through it. Um, and like, like Doug, um, you know, I realized when I was, when I was, you know, moving around and, and living different places was that, uh, it was pretty great where I grew up. And once my, my wife and I decided to have kids, I'm like, it's a pretty great and fantastic, uh, childhood I had and where I grew up and. I think we might just move back there. So here I am uh, back where I actually grew up and uh, absolutely love it. So you have that in common right off the bat then? Yeah, yeah. We have a lot in common. It's scary. (laughs) Sometimes a little too scary. (laughs) So what about sports for you? What were you playing? Um, yeah, in my younger years, not much because it's it's funny because my, uh, my three brothers and I are all fairly athletic or at least try. Uh, my parents were not into sports. They didn't understand the, the concept of sports. And that was uh, mostly because they were very hardworking and didn't have time to cart us around other places. Uh, and that was a, a unnecessary expense. So much of what I did in my, my formative years in elementary, middle school type of thing was all based upon uh, neighborhood sports, you know, playing everything you possibly could, playing football, playing baseball, soccer, whatever it was we could actually end up doing. It wasn't until I got a bit older and, and you know, it'd be, crazy to think of when you think about Baltimore City, but where I live about 10 miles uh, west of the city, we have about 100 miles of single track. Uh, so I got into cycling very young. Um, now progress now, I still competitively, not winning, but still out there competing every, uh, every year in cycling in multiple disciplines and get the opportunity to coach my uh, former high school team. Uh, now mountain biking is actually a high school varsity sport. So I get to coach, you know, the local, you know, my, my alma mater high school and one of my sons uh, in mountain biking. So most of it came back to, to cycling for me. Uh, played some years as playing Gaelic football. Um, cost me about four knee surgeries, but I uh, loved it. Absolutely loved it. And then cycling ended up being the, uh, the, the last resort because as my knee surgeon once told me in my last surgery is that, uh, you know, you should only be running if you're being chased. And honestly, you're big enough to stay and fight. It's better for your knee. <laughs> so, so the running days came to an end <laughs> well I'm going to challenge you because I just found a guy I'm actually getting on a plane tomorrow to go to California to interview him face to face but his name's Ben Patrick and on Instagram he's a knees over toes guy and he's hmm. created this he was a, a basketball player and kind of did that that one um, sport track ended up trashing his knees um, but has created a program basically to put the strength and mobility back in knees so I've had meniscus surgeries on both of mine and uh, I've already seen incredible improvement with that. So from a rehab point of view, that might be something to, to look into. So it's called Knees Over Toes. 
Ah, definitely will. I mean, it's uh, I'm paying for all the sins of my youth. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Well, also, and we'll get into it. You know, the the shifts that we work don't exactly help us when it no, comes to rest no. and recovery. <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> all right. Well, staying with you for a second. Were you dreaming of the fire service in high school, or was there another profession that came before it? You know, I always kind of uh, was drawn to it. And, and you know, so, uh, it's funny. You would think like when you have uh, Irish and Italian background and you come from large families, that there'd be a, a whole enormous amount of relatives who were in place and fire. There was none. Um, my, my brother's a federal agent uh, and, and I'm a firefighter. Uh, and I think my attraction to it was twofold. Uh, one, my father was had a huge affinity for the fire department. Never was in the fire department, had a huge affinity for it. And where I grew up, um, you know, we knew that uh, an engine and truck that came out of this one house had to come past our house on the right side. And if it was a box alarm, we knew that the other engine from another firehouse would come across the front of our house. And my father routinely either throw in a scanner or say, hey, you want to go see if there's something on fire? So I was drawn to the kind of allure of the fire department. Uh, and then in high school, um, like most uh, degenerate uh, high schoolers who was trying to get out of work, I was required to do service hours and do community service. So I thought I'd take the easy way out and I, I would go volunteer at, a, I think it was a nursing home. Uh, I was in there for five minutes. I said, this is not for me. <laughs> I got to figure out something else. So I thought, hey, I, you know, volunteer firefighters allowed, allowed to occur. So I walked into the first firehouse and uh, was not a very good environment. So I ended up leaving and trying another firehouse. And I was, I think, 15 years old at the time, just about turned 16. Uh, and it, I, was, I was hooked. The minute I walked in the door, great environment, great place to go be a firefighter. Um, ended up meeting this other joker here on the screen with me. Um, and it was just a fantastic place to be. And it opened my eyes to a whole new world that uh, I obviously been doing now for close to 30 years. Beautiful. Well, seeing as you brought Doug back in the conversation, let's pick up from there. So, Doug, with your, um, your journey, were you dreaming of the fire service? I mean, you had all these neighbors that were in that profession. Was, this, was it a road that you initially were thinking of doing? Uh, yeah, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I'm... I'm living my childhood dream and there's not many people who can say that. And, uh, and it certainly was, uh, a passion of mine from a extremely young age prior to the, uh, high school formative years, as Dan says, um, I grew up the son of a New York city firefighter. My father, uh, got on the fire department in 1968, worked through the war years, um, in Brooklyn and in the South Bronx, busy, busy companies, um, on the back of the toilet for light reading was WNYF magazines, fire engineering magazines, firehouse magazines. And that's what, uh, I, I knew from a very young age, that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I, and I, and then here I am now, you know, at the twilight of a mediocre career, uh, you know, re realizing that the end is, you know, the end is coming. Uh, it's kind of an, an odd, uh, an odd disparity between, you know, excitement and not regret, but excitement and disappointment that, that, that the end is definitely near. This is a young person's job and it does put it, you know, has it puts its toll on you, uh, as you well know, physically and mentally. I concur um, on the mediocre, by the way, Doug. Yes, I know, Dan. I, I appreciate you. <laughs> I was waiting you. for you to jump on that. <laughs> as, as we, as we say, if someone's going to lob me a softball, I'm, you know, I'm going to hit that thing out of the park. So, 
So I appreciate that, Dan, and I would expect nothing less from you. And in fact, I'd expect nothing more either. So uh, <laughs> at the same time, now I know why you. When I first met you, your your uh, your your pickup games of football in high school and uh, football, baseball, and basketball, maybe in in your neighborhood, didn't do well for your physique. So uh, <laughs> I'm glad you turned yourself around. But anyway, uh, long story short, um, my uh, my my father, uh, a war years. 30, almost, he, he served for 28 years in New York City Fire Department. Um, that was my certainly my passion. My younger brother, Kevin, is also a captain in New York City Fire Department. So the job is indeed family. My great-grandfather uh, came over from Ireland. Uh, as Dan said, his relatives have some family in Ireland also. And he was a, um, a fire captain at the Standard Oil Company in New Jersey, uh, for Standard Oil Company of New Jersey uh, in Philadelphia. And that's when he sent for my grandmother, uh, my father's mother, et cetera, to, to, to come over to the States. So, um, yeah, just, uh, what a tremendous, what a tremendous ride it's been, um, being able to live out my, my childhood dream for sure. Now with your dad being in FDNY and obviously working in pretty busy, you know, suburbs of that area, was that where you initially found that benchmark, that bar being set high with your ownership and training and fitness for your journey in the fire service? Yeah. Um, you know, my father never wanted me to be, never wanted me to be a fireman. And I, I do kind of sometimes take, uh, you know, cause his, he, he felt that my understanding of the fire department and the fire service in general was picnics, Christmas parties, you know, come to the firehouse, everybody's hanging out and, and having such a grand time. And, we, you know, we know that that's not the reality. Uh, and, and his years in the, in the department were some of the most difficult and challenging um, years to be a fireman ever, anywhere, like just period. And he didn't want me to have to see the, the, the tragedy and, and the suffering and, and the, the, the toll that it took on him. And, you know, by and large, I, you know, I, I, I see on Institube and Facegram and all these other platforms, you know, people dressing up their kids as firemen, like, let your kid be a kid. If they want to be a fireman when they grow up, great. And I use fireman interchangeable with firefighter. Um, if they want to be that, but great. You know, do you really got to dress your kid up to be a fireman? Like, come on, who, you know, is this what we're doing here? Because I don't know about you, because this is a nasty, dirty, tough, gritty job and again maybe you take out some of the context you know of the of the urban the suburban like everyone wants to be you know in that urban ghetto kind of environment it it's not it, it's not what it really can appear to be and, and i think a lot of people take that context the wrong way but yes it did you know seeing my father go through that and go through uh, a 28 year career uh, in the new york city fire department probably during some of the toughest, most fire-prone years uh, in our department's history, you know, I would know, you know, my mom, I would come home from school and, uh, you know, if I was in the garage uh, bouncing a basketball, my mother would come down and be like, what are you doing? You know your father's sleeping upstairs. You know he has to go to work tonight. Like, you get out of the house. Go out and play, you know. Uh, so I knew that, you know, even then that, when he would come home, he would be exhausted. And, you know, I say, why didn't they, did they do 24 hour tours? No. And I asked my dad why he goes, because we physically couldn't, like, there was no way I could work 24 hours straight. I would, I wouldn't be able to physically handle that. 
Yeah, well, it's an interesting point that you made about the kind of um, romantic side of working in the busiest areas, because I agree with you completely. I think when you have a burning desire to help, and I found I was drawn always to those areas, apart from my very last apartment where they didn't exist. Um, but it's a burning desire to be in a neighborhood where a lot of people don't give a shit about the people that live there. You know, so I think it takes a real burning altruism to, to put yourself there, but there is a cost. And I know, you know, many of the, the men and women that have stayed there like decades. I mean, you talk about the toll. I don't know if you've seen that kind of, I think it was a civil war picture that was doing the rounds of the internet a while ago. And it was a soldier, um, maybe it was World War One, but it was a soldier right before, you know, when he enlisted and only, I think it was two years later and it looked like he was 10 years older. That's what I see in a lot of these officers and, you know, firefighters that stay in those busy houses. I mean, there's such a cost to the, to the frequency of the calls. And like you said, the, the physical exertion, but just the, the tragedy that you're constantly exposed to as well. Yeah, it's a real thing. I, I agree with you. You know, I think it's tough living uh, for the people who live in those urban environments and it's tough living for the people who are putting you know who are servants to them and that's what we are right we're civil servants right we go out the door we we help people at, at their worst times we see the the best and the worst of humanity uh many times at the occurring simultaneously um so that you know listen i've always loved working in in fire prone areas and 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 worked in some of the greatest firehouses in, in the entire city but you know it's different than being a volunteer firefighter in that romantic or, you know, or being, you know, somewhere where the, everyone has that different view of what the fire service is. And when you're in it, doing it, doing it, it's a little bit different. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Dan, I want to bring you in for a second, but staying on the volunteer topic for mm -hmm. a moment. This is an Englishman who's always worked in the urban sprawl in the American fire service. One of the things that baffles me about the volunteer element is i totally understand if you're out in the middle of montana somewhere and your city has you know a thousand people that there may be you know justification for volunteerism what i don't understand especially in the northeast is where you have densely populated suburban towns that are still served by volunteers so what is your view on the fire service in general trying to move the needle on making those firehouses career firehouses and, and the people that are, you know, worthy of that position, taking them from the volunteer position and actually making them full-time professional firefighters. Yeah, no, and that, I think that's a challenge that every one of these combination systems is, is facing. Uh, and it comes down to a couple of things, right? I mean, it comes down to ultimately what the mission is. The mission is we serve the public. Um, and I'll, I'll take where I work, for example, right? I mean, that is a densely populated area in which uh, people pay a lot of money in taxes, right? And so they have a demand that I need services here at this time frame. If I call 911, I want someone at my front door in X amount of time. And that's where that's, that, that foggy line between people who want to come and serve their community versus what is demanded for the services for what I, where I'm living. So if I'm paying this much money in taxes, I want a fire truck to be here in three minutes, in six minutes, in nine minutes. So it is a very difficult burden. I think you know it, you see multiple or different ways of how the system works. Um, I know the system that I came up in was was a combination system, right? So I mean, I rode with career firefighters every day, um, and you went there to support what they were doing. So if there wasn't the fiscal support for them to have six on a fire truck like Doug uh, has and some of his apparatus, 
and they only had three or four, then you went to go support that versus other places that you get into this back and forth. And this is what I see routinely. It's not, uh, it's more across the country, right? You have people who want to serve their community, but at the end of the day, it's about the people we serve and it's about doing the best thing for them. So how do we achieve that? Do we achieve it by still allowing you uh, to volunteer, but not at the expense that we can't provide the service to the public? So it always is very difficult and slippery slope. And I think every situation is different because it's based upon where you are. Uh, but look, man, it's I'm a huge proponent of the stoic philosophy. Uh, and, and many people let their ego get in the way. And, and the ego is is the enemy many times when it comes down to it. And that it's about me. You're making it about what I want to do. No, it's about what's the best thing for the public we serve. And maybe it is that you need to transition to an all-career force. Or maybe it's you have a combination system that slowly will demonstrate that there's not many volunteers. I mean, I know for you know Fairfax County was in the 1940s is when we became a, a paid fire department. We're almost 1,800 members. So as that place becomes more densely populated, there's less and less people who are going to come serve and volunteer because it's a transient population, right? I mean – I'm in close proximity to the U.S. Capitol and, uh, and the White House, right? Every four years, you might have, be finding a new home. So how many of those people are really uh, living in their community, been there for eons, and they want to serve? So it, 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 I don't think there's an easy answer. Um, I think it really depends on your situation. I think it's always great. I, 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 would, I would never knock uh, anyone who wants to volunteer a community because that's what opened my eyes to the fire service. I worked with some tremendous people. Uh, one of my acknowledgments in our book was to a paid firefighter who took time to mentor me when he didn't have to. And the, the level of mentoring and coaching and support that he gave me was tremendous that 20 plus years later, he's the first person that came to mind. And I had to say, man, I got to thank that guy because he instilled in me uh, a lot of things that he didn't have to spend the time doing. Um, but then, then the other side of it too is, I always come back to is it's you know, mission first people always, right? It's about the mission and what we do. And we need people to be able to do that. And they're so vitally important to us to be able to achieve that mission. But at the end of the day, without that mission, there's no need for us to exist. They wouldn't need the fire service. So well, long answer to your short question. <laughs> no, a great answer to my short question. So Doug, what about you? Any Anything to put in there? No, I think Dan summed it up quite uh, eloquently. I, I don't think, uh, you know, again, I think that there's a need for it and, and the need has to be uh, based to get the services to the people. Um, and I think, you know, again, as Dan said, there's a lot of factors that play into that uh, monetarily, egotistically, um, romantically, but uh, the bottom line has to be uh, service for the people. That is what we were here for. There are no volunteer accountants, there are no volunteer uh, teachers, right? We have to provide a service and the, the, the fire service is no different. We have to make sure that we're putting our right foot forward and dealing with our people. Absolutely. All right. Well, you just hit on mentorship. So I want a tangent on that because that's something that I talk about a lot here. There's a friend of mine, Chris Hickman, who's a Ocala firefighter that started a mentorship program. And when I hear 
people talking about the lack of preparation of some of the candidates, when I hear about diversity, which obviously is a hot topic and, you know, FDNY has uh, you know, had a chapter in there too, the answer to me always seems to go back to mentorship. And what they have is a program where they remove all barriers to entry. As long as you can physically show up to where they have the training, they'll give you the equipment, the training. There are scholarships to go to the fire academy. There are departments waiting for those, those uh, candidates to come out of fire academy. So it really does go into the underserved communities and find the best candidates within those demographics and help raise them up. So from each of you through your department's lenses, um, you know, what, what is the, uh, the kind of mentorship philosophy of the candidates who are trying to get to walk through the door in the first place? Um, Doug, you want to go first? You want me to? Good. Um, so, uh, again, I mean, Doug and I work in two very diverse places, right? I mean, uh, you know, Doug has 8 million people. We have just about 1.5 million people. And you, you, you're going to have a melting pot of that. And you want your, your workforce to reflect the community in which you serve. Um, and right now, I mean, we're all fighting this battle to recruit for good people. Uh, and you're trying to find the best candidates all the time. But I come back to like, you're 100% correct is that you want a workforce that reflects the community you serve because you want connection with those people. Uh, you want connection to understand what they're going through. And, that, and then as we talk about community risk reduction, right? A lot of that is knowing who your community is and knowing how you can uh, serve that community uh, directly and responsibly and actually be efficient and effective in what you do. Uh, and you're right. So the, the mentorship is a huge part of that. You know, how do you bring people in and then how do you keep them? And I go back to the ego, right? I mean, it's about, you know, I had people who invested an enormous amount of time and effort in me. My responsibility is to take that and play it back to the, the people I work with every day. And it's very similar to parenting, right? I mean, I, I love my two sons to death. My goal is to make them better humans than me. So the people I work with, you know, my goal is to make them when they reach the deputy level, that they're a much better deputy than I am. You know, and how do we do that? And how do we bring people into the fold? Uh, I mean, a lot of it is when we are able to take away uh, a lot of the, the ego and focus on what are we trying to achieve? And you, you brought up, you know, the, the terms, right, diversity and inclusion, like, and, and we can't, and again, this is my take on, right? I mean, diversity is a seat at the table. Inclusion means you have a voice at the table. And I love the fact that I can work with people who have different backgrounds than me, whether it's gender, race, sex, creed, whatever it is. I love it. I mean, it, it because it gives you perspective. And once you can take away your blinders and go, okay, I have an idea or something I want to do, and I think this is the right idea, do you have anyone to check your blind spot? If you don't, man, you go down this path, and it, it, again, it's where you get in your own way. Versus if you surround yourself with people with different thought process than you, and not just contrarians to, to throw anger and age at you all day long, but people who have different thoughts because of their background, who can say, hey, did you think about this? Of course I didn't, because I don't have that background. Uh, and I think that that is vitally important, and that's the key to our success. I mean, I, I love, you know, read about Lincoln, right? Team of rivals. How would you ever surround yourself with people who, who are undermining you? Well, it's, that's a tremendous thought process, right? I don't, well, we, we can have discord, but I need your input. And I, I want to know your perspective because it's only make us better as we kind of form this nation and uh, during reconstruction. And the same applies to what we do every single day. Not that you have to go find your rivals, but find people who think differently than you because they have different backgrounds. And you'll be so much better at what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve 
which is ultimately the mission serving that same exact population. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add on that, you know, Dan, I think you, you, you really hit most of the highlighted points. Um, you know what? We're, we're all on the team together, right? So one of the key components of being um, a team player is, is knowing the strengths and weaknesses of your, of your team, right? Knowing the strengths and weaknesses of your players on that team. Um, we all have different backgrounds. We all come from different uh, upbringings, et cetera, et cetera. And largely, our diversity is our strength. So when we're faced with difficult tasks and we're faced with complex, multidimensional tasks, we hope that we have a team player who may be able to elicit some input or help us get through that particular obstacle. So again, our diversity is definitely our strength. And I know that you know, our department has made great strides in diversity uh, over the years. Uh, again, a little bit different than Dan's department. We have uh, civil service law that handles most of our, our hiring and, and, and establishments of the prom- promotional lists and uh, eligible lists. So it's a little bit different in that regard. But once that list is established, our department has assigned mentors, uh, firefighters and fire officers to each prospective candidate to try to get them prepared. And, and listen, there has to be some level of, uh, of want uh, on the candidate's part. We, you know, we, again, we, we can't be giving the job away. We can make them aware of what the challenges are. Uh, and I think we can, we can try to help them help themselves, but it, it's got to be a two-way street, right? We can't just constantly push, push, push without any give back from, from the person. So um, yeah, great, great question. I think we all strive to, um, as Dan said, not only have a, a diverse group of people who are working on our team, but make sure that everybody has uh, some say at the table. Absolutely. Well, I think the one prejudice that I've seen, the only one that has value is whether you can or whether you can't. And the irony is when we are fully bunkered up, you can't tell if we're gay, straight, purple, orange, striped. You know what I mean? We're just... That's, that's the great thing about it. You're charging down a smoky hallway. Do you ever stop and look through the zero visibility? No. Because you know, when you do tough things together, you bond and you work together and you're working to accomplish that mission. You could care less about what their, their background is, but you're glad they're there. Exactly. And then that's just it. So you want to find the best version of whatever demographic that you maybe haven't been serving before and raise them up so they can be an incredible, you know, Englishman. You've got a void of English people on your thing. So you need to find <laughs> the best English people and raise them up. <laughs> I really haven't found too many, James. I'm glad I finally found you. I, I've been the, the only one in the several departments, so I, I know what it's like to be a minority. <laughs> I, actually worked, I actually worked with uh, with a bunch of um, European counselors when I used to work at a summer camp. We had uh, counselors that would come in for the summer. and then I they worked would, the summer camps. I, did you? Yeah, yeah. So who knows? We might have some people in common uh, when we get off to the chat here. We'll, we'll talk. But yeah, I, I have some great friends uh, overseas that I, I try to see from time to time, too. Yeah, that's a great program as well, actually, and you know, a great way of bringing, bringing international, you know, again, mentors to a summer camp full of kids. And, you know, the and bringing I, some diversity, right? Bringing some diversity to the camp. Absolutely. Showing people something else, even if it's just a different accent or a different voice, you know? Exactly. And it is a different way of thinking. I've always said you want to really get rid of some of these prejudices, then get people to travel. You know, get outside mm-hmm. your country and see the world. You hear about, oh, I was talking to a guy who lives in Brazil. You know, when we think of Rio de Janeiro, we think of, you know, slums and 
murders in the streets and children being executed and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, no, you know, when I, when you're here, yes, just like, you know, areas of Baltimore and Orlando and mm -hmm. everywhere else, we have our bad areas. But he's like, there's a beautiful jungle right behind me and we go hiking every day and it's, it's gorgeous here. So yeah, when you actually go and see the world with your own eyes, it really does recalibrate, you know, the way that you've been fed information. Organic silos, right? Absolutely. Well, another area, because I know, um, uh, Doug, you know, you, you're in a leadership position in The Rock now, the Academy for FDNY. And, you know, so you've got two different perspectives here as well. One thing I hear is that people are struggling to hire recently. And what I have seen in my rather short career compared to yours is uh, over time, the bar has been lowered in some departments to try and get more candidates. Now, for me personally, my philosophy is that is the polar opposite of what needs to happen. When you leave the bar set high, I feel like it draws more people because they're actually challenged by that and want to rise up to the bar. So I'll start with you, Dan, this time. What are you seeing? Are you seeing any kind of challenges in, in hiring? And then, you know, what are the kind of principles that you bring in your department? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's a challenge every day. Uh, I mean, James, my position, we, I have to deal with staffing every day. And you know, we were 100 short every day. Um, and we're fighting for the same personnel, but I will give all the credit to my organization. I'm the biggest cheerleader for them. Uh, we have, we have changed the, the bar when it comes to recruiting. Um, and essentially we took the mentality of, if you want to you know, be a fighter jet pilot, here's the 14 attributes you have, you have to have to be, be a fighter jet pilot. You got 13, you're not going to be a fighter jet pilot. So if you want to be one of our firefighters, here's our attributes. Here's the things you have to do. And we're, 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 not, we're unrelenting in that. But the challenge now is on us. How do you go recruit the best to find all those people? Uh, and that's the challenge we work through. And COVID threw a huge spike in that, right? I mean, we're one of the few agencies that uh, we are veteran friendly. Like as soon as you get out of the service, you know, here's the list of all the businesses that are very veteran, veteran friendly. You know, we want people who are coming back from that. But you try to recruit in the Northern Virginia region, yeah, you're not going to get a, a, a retiring general that going to go be a firefighter. <laughs> you need infantry, which means you have to go to a base, which you couldn't get on the bases and you couldn't recruit that way. So it, it is it is a challenge. I mean, I think it's a healthy challenge. I think we've we've invested an enormous amount of people, hours, uh, time, effort into uh, not only maintaining our high level expectations, because I would tell you from my perspective, right? I mean, you hire one person. That is a problem. It might be a one-year solution. It's a 25-year problem. But I want to have someone come in that is has a desire for this, is is driven by the mission. They've demonstrated it, right? And then they have a passion. They want to get through this arduous process that we have. It's not a one-step process for us. I can't remember the exact number we have right now, but I think it's either 12 or 13 steps to go through to get hired. Now, the responsibility is on us to streamline that, to get them in the door and get here. But we're hiring experienced classes. We're hiring you know, people who are, have no experience at all because we're looking for that crop of people who have a passion for this job, this passion to serve, the passion to serve the mission. And we want them to be a part of the team. And once you're in, man, you're, you're supported forever. Uh, I, I, I can't tell you enough the accolades I have for my department, what they've done for me to support me from my time as a probationary firefighter to every rank up to where I'm at now, the tremendous job they've done, the opportunity, you just have to step through the door. You just got to do the work. So it, it, it is a struggle. I mean, I think we're all 
looking for those great candidates. But uh, I, I am very happy to, to say this, that our organization has maintained that high level expectation because we want the best out there and the public demands the best. Beautiful. Well, Doug, same question to you. So whereas Dan is, you know, they're, they're actually actively going out and recruiting. They're doing, um, what is it? Is it called lateral, Dan? What, what is it called? Or experienced? Yeah, they do experienced schools. I mean, they always use different terms, lateral experience, things of that nature. Okay. Because our recruit school yeah. is much longer than Doug's. Yeah, and I think that's because they're doing, you guys do EMT, do, right? Yep. And, yeah, yep. which is a little bit different than our certified first responder program. Um, but, you know, largely we don't get to choose, uh, again, as you know, we're, we're a little bit more dialed in with civil service law in, the, in New York City. So we don't really get to choose our candidates per, perhaps based on um, passion, right? Um, you're assigned, a, uh, you take, a, you take a, an entrance exam, uh, you, you take the physical exam, you, those scores get combined, you get on a list, you get a list number. When your number gets reached, you come to the academy, uh, sign some papers, and you start the training. So largely, the, the, the passion um, is invoked by the staff. Uh, and I think that's the key point here is that your training staff has to have um, not only the ability to give the instruction, but to try to start um, building um, that, that passion from, you know, from the executive staff on down to the, the, the instructors who are actually performing the evolutions. Um, that's the key. Uh, and, and largely, you know, the firehouse will, will pick up where the, that first wave of instructions, uh, instructors started. Um, but I, I think that's, that's the key is that that passion is not going to be in every candidate when they come to your school or when they come to your program. Um, but you have to make them aware of, of what they're getting themselves into. And that's, you know, again, it's a reality that, that sometimes people don't necessarily understand um, because of what they see on TV. They see the glorification. Uh, it's not that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It might be 2% that and 98% uh, sweating, crawling down hallways with, with zero visibility, et cetera, et cetera, as Dan mentioned before. So I think you know, largely, you know, the training staff is key to, to setting the tone um, for inserting that passion in, in some of those candidates as they come into that that door. Now, and you supported um, with the attrition side too. I would say probably the, the most professional department I worked for was Anaheim. Um, and every higher class, they would lose about 25% through attrition. But just like Dan was saying, they had their standard. And if you didn't meet the standard, then, you know, thank you so much. There's other agencies out there. Good luck. But you're just not the right fit for us. And I struggle because I was East Coast trained in you know, Florida. And the way they threw ladders was very different. We didn't vent. We didn't. So I had to kind of learn what my peers had learned in the academy, you know, super, super fast to try and catch up. But was lucky enough to, you know, to, to stay, to make it through. But, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they stood very fast with that that standard and if they you know if they lost people they lost people and they just made it up with the next hiring class what is the the philosophy of people that made it in especially you doug where it's kind of a civil service test so you haven't had to go through fire academy and some of these other things that would weed out some people when you come across candidates that just aren't a right fit for your department well there's you know again this as you as you mentioned the standards are the standards right and our standards are are you know held across the board 
Um, there's quite a uh, variant uh, levels of what is the qualified, uh, you know, here's, here's the range that you have to beat. Here's the score that you have to have. And it, it literally comes down to being black and white as far as whether you met the standards or you didn't meet the standards. Again, that's why I think uh, two couple of questions ago, you said, you know, uh, with, with new people, there has to be some, uh, you know, they offer sessions to, for additional help, people who need additional help, whether that be academically or, or uh, with hands-on skills. People have got to show up. You know, if you, if you don't show up to those remedial sessions, you don't put that extra effort in. You're not showing us that you're even, tr you don't even try. You don't, you don't really even care you're, that, that passion for just pass. You know, if you don't pass, you don't pass. And I think that's kind of, there really is no gray there. And, and the standards I think have been maintained in that, in that regard. And, and that's a good thing for us. Well, in the book, one of the first things you refer to, and I know um, uh, Frank Viscuso touched on this very thing. I listened to your interview with him from a few years ago now, but it's a very important concept. You know, you make it through, I've said this many times in Florida, we call our fire academy minimum standards. So it's labeled for you that that's as shit as you should be through your whole career. Um, <laughs> but I see a lot of, you know, my peers that I've seen, you know, in, especially in, in some of the less professional departments where the bar isn't held high, where fire academy was almost viewed as the pinnacle. Oh, that was when I was in my fittest, you know, and, and there's a kind of a drop off and a perfect, you know, example is the SCBA. A number of times that I would go pass on and, you know, I'd get a 45 bottle that was given to me at 39 or four. And I'm, you know, mm. I'd, I'd be a little English, a bit a little angry in my own English way and, and, you know, be like, so I'm going to go in a fire with 500 less than, I could potentially have a 700 less than potentially have. So that's just one of many, many areas where you kind of see that, that deviation from that standard that you were held to during the academy. So you have these candidates, they've made it through. How do you then maintain that philosophy of combat readiness, whether it's your actual ownership of your equipment, whether it's your training level, whether it's your fitness standards? Uh, I mean, well, again, we go back to society, right? It's true. Society is in the fire department. People do one of two things. They raise to your level of expectations or they drop to your level of tolerance. You pick the narrative. So if you don't have high expectations, why are you surprised when they're always trying to figure out what your level of tolerance is? Uh, and what Doug and I have an immense passion for, and you mentioned combat ready, right? I mean, that was our friend who unfortunately died in line of duty, Pete Lund. That was his whole mantra, right? Was was combat ready was about being ready, treating every fire as the biggest fire of your career until you get there and determine otherwise. So you always had the mentality that we're going to work because why? Because of the mission. And so if, if you if you educate people to it, because you know, if they go to a firehouse where, hey, look, they're not they're not that busy. We're, we don't go to many fires. It's okay. You can just you can sleep until you're hungry and eat until you're tired. What a ridiculous statement. I mean, what a complete lack of leadership because we know how dangerous this job is. I mean, Doug and I wouldn't have the platform to be able to do 25 to survive if we didn't have these stats glaring us right in the face uh, to look at the, this type of stuff. So we have this information that tells you your job is inherently dangerous. It demands these things from you. So the expectation is here. You know, perhaps some, some people need someone to directly tell them like, you need to see what exactly this means. So to your point, 500 pounds of air, whatever, it's 500 pounds of air. Okay, well, I can show you a disorientation study in which is line of duty deaths all focused on disorientation being the, the primary contributing cause. 
And all, all that study, these guys died within five to eight feet of an exit. So if I gave you back 500 pounds of air, do you think you could crawl in four directions, five to eight feet? I'm sure you could. So now that 500 pounds of air, you think is, ah, whatever. I'm just too lazy to walk from here over to there to fill it. We can't pick and choose the fires we go to. We don't get a scheduled time for our working fires. We don't get a scheduled time for when disaster or tragedy is going to hit. So when it does hit you, are you ready? And, you know, one of the best compliments that we ever got, and I think it was an Amazon uh, uh, compliment or not compliment feedback, was like one star for our book. And it was because this is the most basic I've ever read. Thank you. Because that's what gets us in trouble is basic fundamental skills that aren't executed in a chaotic environment that start to couple together and you see a calamity of errors and you see the domino effect and there's no one who stops it. And then they just start to compound and by themselves, not a big deal. But when they start to compound, you see things go, bad things start to happen. And that's why, you know, to your focus of, you know, how can we change that? High expectations. Why do I have high expectations? Here's your motivation. Because what we suffer with a lot in the fire service is we don't explain the why. Why do I need to put 500 pounds in there in, in here, James? Well, why is it important? Okay, I can tell you, like I just explained to you, like maybe that makes you realize is that this father, this son, this, this husband, this wife's not coming home because of 500 pounds of air. There's many other things that led to it, but maybe we could have changed that one outcome if they had 500 pounds of air. So sometimes it's that simple to really get it, but it's an understanding of it and understanding the why behind what we do. And then hopefully that motivates you to it and it opens the door, right? I mean, you just start looking at everything as how can I get better? How can I work towards achieving that level of mastery that this job demands? And it can seem exhausting and it can seem all consuming and unattainable, but man, the process is fun because you just keep getting better and better at what you're doing. You keep honing your craft. A great, a great quote, you know, is, is just trust the process, right? Trust the process. Trust the process of the fire academy. Trust the process of getting to the firehouse, being the probationary firefighter assigned to a company. It will come. And the way I look at it is when you graduate from probate school, my expectations of you coming into a firehouse is my firehouse is your probate. And you should know the basics so that you don't get yourself hurt or killed or get our company jammed up, hurt or killed. From there, the company will take over and make you into a farm. And that starts with, you know, uh, the, as Dan mentioned, the, the company officers setting that tone, setting the expectations. And that filters down through the senior firefighters, again, kind of bringing them under their wind and mentorship. And, and quite honestly, you know, who's like really, I find to be really impactful, those guys between the three to five year range who are still at the tip of the spear uh, in terms of their fitness and readiness. They've, they've gotten the information from those company officers. They know what the expectations are for the newer members and they want that new firefighter to, to succeed. And they give them that motivation. And sometimes it's a little shot where it's needed. Um, to do the right thing. And listen, it's easy to do the right thing when everybody's watching you, right? And in this business uh, and the way we are in society today, you know, you are always being watched, you know, from the, the time the red door goes up to the time the red door goes down, you know, you're, you're pretty much on camera anytime you're out in public. 
So we want to set the right image. We want to set the right example. We want to be positive uh, in our in our leadership, and we want to be positive with the, that next generation because our time on this job is definitely limited, right? There's a there's a start and there's an end date, and what we do in between is what has how we create that legacy of what will be left when we leave because everyone has to walk out the door. Uh, I know Dan thinks that you know since he's the the division commander there uh, that when he leaves the department will crumble and, and fall to the ground and they'll have. <laughs> You know, uh, black bunting bands across this locker. This is what I have to deal with. <clears throat> right. But you know, as soon as the day he retires, guess what? The, the, the following tour, somebody else will be in his shoes, in his spot. And that's the same with all of us. We are very, we are very replaceable. Um, so you, we have a short window to try to impart um, good on the next generation. And I think that's one of the things that make us so fortunate, you know, Dan and I, in, in our, not only in our conversations with each other, but in our conversations, you know, now that firefighting is a worldwide global thing, right? With, with, with a couple of clicks on a keyboard, you can see what they're doing in England. You can see what they're doing in, in Anaheim and in Orlando. Um, so it certainly made the fire service more global. Is that good? Yeah. Is that bad? Yeah. So there, there's pluses and minuses that we can take away from both sides of um, are, are now global experience uh, with, with each other. Again, something like this 10 years ago, we wouldn't have a platform to speak to you. And then, you know, I, I saw your post from yesterday about was over 2.5 million people that you've reached with your podcast. It's a tremendous accomplishment, something that was unattainable, something that would be unattainable and unimaginable 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So where are we going to go from here? I don't know. Yeah, well, it's interesting, um, you know, with the the social media element. I want to talk about senior man in a sec because I, I got to you know have one of your incredible members from FDNY, Al Benjamin, on. So uh, we'll get to that in just a second. But one thing that I see um, a lot of, and you know, I'm, I'm in a bit of an echo chamber, but you know, there's a lot of videos of this is me forcing a door. This is me on my knees spinning this the hose right, you know, the hose line round around around. But I don't see a lot of conversation on fitness and there are some very 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 fit firefighters of all shapes and sizes out there that are crushing it but those skills are irrelevant if you cannot make it to the fire floor and you have gas left in the tank so i'm very very deliberate in educating people through the guests that i get on on how this job is set up to to for us to fail to to kill us i mean because it is the way that we work destroys the human body mentally and physically and the people that you know that that do well are doing it despite the work conditions not because of it that being said there's an element of ownership as well and you know there was uh i'm, I'm embarrassed i'm forgetting his name but it's a chief in uh, i think it was seattle no denver denver and uh he was at the orlando fire conference and i asked him you know what is the the toilet yeah what what, what is the 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 height that you require your firefighters to to be able to climb and he said the tallest building and i was like boom mic drop because that's just it in my last place we had a 28 story hotel right next to my my firehouse and the the response from a lot of the members of that department were, well we'll just take the elevator well yeah you will until you can't you know what i mean so you know with this kind of decline that we see in in police in fire with some of our members you know, there, there's a decrease of the ability to simply even do the job, to simply even get to the fire floor, to make that rescue. So what are you seeing on the the fitness element 
as we go through the career? I mean, are you able to hold the bar high in your um, departments? And if not, what are some of the solutions that we need to do in the fire service? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in, Dan. Um, you know, first of all, I think, that, again, talking on a, on a global level, um, there needs to be more um, yearly testing for firefighters in terms of not only fitness, but health in general, right? There are, there are still departments out there who don't, don't give their employees uh, or their members annual physicals, annual, annual medical exams. That's something on a global level that, that needs to be addressed um, to try to keep us fit and, and healthy in that regard. Um, you know, as far as overtime, I, you know, I, I alluded to it earlier. This, this is a young person's job, man. And the older you get, uh, not that you take shortcuts, but you, you kind of know your body a little bit better and you're able to kind of maneuver through those, um, those avenues that, you know, again, cause you know, you now know your personal strengths and weaknesses, uh, whether it com- when it comes to your fitness, right. Um, you know, on duty fitness training, uh, it, it's that is very challenging, right? Because I do need my energy for the fire floor. I'm going out the door several times uh, a tour where I'm going to be routinely doing, you know, 30, 40, 50 flights of stairs just in a, in a, in a, in a 24 hour tour or in a nine hour or 15 hour tour. So, you know, is that the day that I'm going to go up and run four miles on the, on the treadmill? So again, trying to find the balance between, on-duty training, off-duty training, uh, in, in terms of your fitness is, is definitely a challenge, especially I think as you get a little bit older, because now you, when you're home, you've got family commitments and, you know, there's never an easy time to try to fit that all in. Um, but again, I, I've tried to maintain some level of fitness um, throughout the course of, of, of my career. And I think that's uh, will hopefully have allowed me to continue. And, you know, when I'm ready to go, I'll be ready to go. And, most importantly, when I'm ready to go, I'll be able to live my life and enjoy my retirement happy and as healthy as I can be. I think that's the key, too, is that, you know, you, listen, we have a finite beginning and an end to our career. But at the end of your career is not the end of your life. It's the beginning of the rest of your life that you now can take that next chapter and enjoy those grandkids and enjoy, the, the you know, watching your kids uh, uh, get married and go through their life. Uh, and, and you can kind of you know, enjoy that second half, if you will. And, and I think being in good shape physically, mentally, emotionally uh, will help you get there and keep you there for longer in your retirement after the job. Uh, well, so James, uh, this, this may sound like a recruitment poster, but it is. Um, so I work for a fantastic organization that th- this is uh, of paramount importance to us, right? So if we're going to read the stats and Doug and I focus a lot on line of duty deaths, then we, can, we can't bury our head in the sand and say we don't realize that 50% or more are dying in line of duty or from cardiovascular disease. So the greatest exercise we can do is to teach you how to push away from the table every once in a while and, and learn how to eat better and exercise, right? So my organization, uh, we, we take this incredibly serious and we have the support to be able to do it, right? So we have our own occupational health center with our own physicians uh, so that every year my physical is about three to four hours long. Um, so I'm getting stress tests, I'm getting uh, VO2 max done, uh, and I'm getting trended the entire time. But more importantly, in the firehouse every day, you know, we have our own strength and conditioning coach uh, that designs all my workouts for me. Uh, anyone can go on Instagram and look at the WellFit Strength Center. That That is our uh, occupational uh, team that is running the workouts every single day with their functional workouts for this job. 
that have accompanying videos to show you what to do. So if you can't even find a workout, you can do it. Uh, on top of every firehouse has gym equipment. Uh, every firehouse um, has the ability to reach out to our nutritionists, our behavioral health team, to be able to have all that because it's so vitally important because we are industrial athletes. This is what we do. I mean, when Doug and I are teaching, I always use the example of, look, Usain Bolt, probably one of the fittest, fastest guys ever when he was in his prime. He was told on Tuesday, you're going to race. His race was 9.4, no, I think his fast time was 9.58 seconds. So for every day, seven days a week, the way he slept, the way he ate, the way he trained, he knew on this event that he knows when it's going to occur, that he has to work for 9.58 seconds wearing a little singlet. Everything was about the preparation. Now you take a firefighter, sedentary, asleep, gets woken up, goes from resting heart rate to max heart rate with 100 pounds of gear on, into a superheated environment with all the things we know that happens with the brain when you're under stress and the impact on human performance. And then they're going to operate for 20 plus minutes in the superheated environment. And then we wonder why we have this high number of line of duty deaths related to cardiac related issues. If you say in bold is doing this for 9.58 seconds on a planned event, what are we doing for the unplanned chaotic event in a superheated environment? So I think once we change that mentality, and again, it takes an enormous amount of support, but there's avenues. And if you don't work for an organization like what we have in Fairfax, then reach out. Like I said, we, we're willing to share anything when it comes down to it, because ultimately we are all the same. We just wear different uniforms. And, you know, me going to a funeral for someone who suffers because of this, you know, a line of duty death because of a heart attack, because it's an undiagnosed medical issue, is heartbreaking if it was one of our own. Uh, in Fairfax. So, you know, it, it starts with that mentality. And I think, you know, once you get almost obsessive about it, I mean, I feel so guilty if I don't work out every single day. Like you terrible human being, why have you not worked out? And try to focus everything based upon why do you work out? Because you have a desire to accomplish a mission which people are paying me and demand I me. And for, for me in my position, like I can't tell the all the people I have on duty every single day, like go work out. I'm going to go sleep and eat bonbons in my bed. You know, no, look, you don't have to be the fittest, the fastest, lift the most weight, jump the highest, but you got to do work. Because at the end of the day, as I, we, we, Doug and I talk my class all the time and I tell my guys ad nauseum, the fire always gets a vote. And when, when, when it decides it's going to be a violent, uh, unexpecting fire in which, you know, you're facing all these challenges do you want your cardiovascular system to be able to respond to that? Or do you want to be a liability to that team that's crawling down the hallway with you? There's not many things we get to pick the narrative to, but this is one of them. And so, you know, what are you doing every single day to make yourself ready for that fight that's unexpected, that doesn't care, doesn't discriminate, and is going to bring down its wrath on you? How ready are you? Absolutely. Well, it's tying in you know, another area to that. One thing again, because I've, I've got, been very lucky to, to really see a spectrum of, of fire departments from, you know, very, very aggressive bar hell, very high to the bar is in a sewer somewhere underneath where I'm standing and everywhere in between. Um, and, you know, there's an absolute linear correlation between bar high and professionalism, fitness standards, you know, training, all those things. Um, where I see it slipping in the poor departments is box checking and training. I remember one time we did a ladder throw. And in this group that I was in, it was absolutely piss poor. I came to just come from California 
ladders are kind of a big deal over there. Um, and this one firefighter did the shittiest ladder throw I've ever seen in my life. And they were like, all right, next. I'm like, what? You're not going to even like correct them, teach them how to do it, do repetitions, nothing. So what I'm seeing is a lot of box checking, which gets so far from realism, training under duress, creating that worst case scenario. So as they say in you know MMA, for example, you want your training to be worse than when you're in the cage. So what, it, again, that your philosophy is on being able to maintain that realism within training itself? I'll start out, Dan. Uh, you know what? You have to crawl before you walk. You have to build a foundation before you build a house, right? So we have to ensure that our people understand and can grasp the basics before we put them into positions and training that's designed for failure, right? We want our people to succeed in training so that as we, as we level up and as we ramp up um, the, the, the challenges, the difficulty, um, the things that are kind of put in on top the layers, as we layer the training to make it more intense, that they succeed, but they have to have the grasp of the foundation of the basics to do before, you know, you can't, if you just throw somebody into a, a chaotic, crazy uh, fire training event with smoke and they're throwing the babies out the window, it, your performance, you, you should expect to have a failed performance. And then, you know, people are going to say, Oh, well, look at this guy. He can't do this, this, and this. You, you gotta, you gotta start from the basics. And, and I think that, not only uh, in the uh, fire training ground at the fire academy, but in the firehouse, you have to ramp up your your, your training to get to that point. Um, you know, you mentioned checkbox training. Yeah, sure. There are there are department um, training uh, modules that must be checkboxed for sure. But it's up to the company officer many times in in how you get there um, and how you can make that checkbox work for your people. Um, where I work now, we don't have um, many subway um, stations and stuff like that. So if the drill's on the subway, well, there's drills that I can do regarding subway because we're not always going to be uh, in our first two areas. We might be relocated to another part of the city that does have subways. But again, making that drill yours and not just to check the box, but to check your people and see where their level of experience, exposure, and knowledge is on the subject. So that's what you're checking. <laughs> you know, yes, you may have to check the physical box that, yes, I, I did my training today or I, I did my drill for the day or for the, for the month or for the, for the week or whatever it may be. But you're really just checking to see that your people are on point with the topic at hand, right? And if more re review is required, then you can go as deep or as superficial as it needs to be. Uh, you want to challenge your people, which I think is always a good thing. Um, then maybe you can, once you've gotten them to the point where they have some competency and, and mastery of the, of the basic tenets of the drill, then you can take it to the next level. Um, again, uh, you know, uh, depend departments, it's going to vary from department to department. I can't do a, you know, a cr crazy mega drills with guys on air. And then we you know, we get a run first do for a fire. Uh, we don't, we don't, you know what I'm saying? So like there's times and opportunities for that, whether you're going to go to the training Academy where you're going to be out of service and now you can do like a full scale drill, versus things that you can do in quarters. Um, I try to do a drill. Uh, it, it doesn't, it's not called a drill, but every time we go out the door, every run we go on, I just try to pick out something in that building, which is usually in our first two area that we can discuss. 
and we have a little two or three minute discussion every run about something, a building feature, a noteworthy uh, occupancy, uh, a set of locks that we come across that we haven't seen in a while. How would you do this? Where would you go for this type of fire? And that is engaging on every run. So it's not just, uh, hey, guys, it's, it's three o'clock. Let's sit down at the kitchen table. And, and the officer comes in and you know, puts the book on and opens the page five and reads you, uh, you know, the outline of what's the drill topic for the day. But it's more engaging and more rewarding because they're seeing things that they're going to be responding to and they're in the buildings that they're responding to routinely day in and day out. So that's that's kind of my take on uh, on on checkbox training. You know, th- yes, there's there's global views that the department wants certain mandates met, um, but you got to you got to bring all of that back, uh, meet those goals. But then more as importantly, make sure that you're checking your people's understanding of what of what's actually transpiring. Yeah, and I, th- I think ultimately it comes down to you, you got to have fidelity in your training, right? You got to have that has to exist in what you do. And so you go back to the core principles of what we're trying to achieve, right? And I think the, the one thing we suffer at in the American Fire Service is that we don't have people who have an unwillingness to train. They don't know how to train. And so when you, you break that down, you go, okay, well, who's training them? Who are you putting into your training staff? Is it people who you don't want in the field? Or, you know, people who, who are, you're teaching to simply just pull out the book and say, here's the JPRs, mark them all. So you, a key element of being able to train well and have fidelity, right, is to explain the why. So do you drill just for arbitrary purposes? I'm the chief. I come down and tell Doug, the captain, train. Okay. Hey, Cap, why are we training? The chief told me to. You know, so you're just training for ar- ar- arbitrary reasons and you don't have purpose. And think about everything we even talk about leadership, right, is, you have to have purpose to what you're doing if you want people to pledge allegiance to it and get behind it. So I always, you know, I, I learned from my mentors, you know, especially when I was an engine officer, I would look at every position we had on the engine company. And look, we're looking to achieve mastery. And I would look at everything that that person would do. So for us, uh, the right bucket position sits behind the officer as a nozzle firefighter. What does that position need to know? They got to know how to estimate the stretch. They got to know how to do a well hole stretch. They got to know how the nozzle works. They got to know fire stream management. They got to know nozzle obstructions. They got to know how to break away tip. Each one of those was a drill. And so what we would focus on every single day is we will do one of these drills. The drill might be five minutes long. It might be five hours long. Could care less how long it takes. What we're looking to achieve is that you understand why we're doing it and you develop a level of mastery. And so, you know, we, we got this up to like 85 drills. Well, Look, the 12 months later, the new probie comes in. Guess what we did? Stop Repeat cycle. And we added different drills. And now it wasn't me doing the drill. It was it was Doug as, as the left bucket guy. Because now he is developing mastery. He can start teaching. And so the cyclical process just keeps working where we're building this mastery. We're getting to this level where we truly understand what we're doing. Now we can start escalating it, Right. And start and Doug has done a lot with the human performance and, and uh, under stress and understanding stress inoculation, right? Now we start subjecting you to greater stress and preparing you for that event because the fire always gets a vote. And we got to do everything we can to be able to combat that by preparing you as much as we possibly can and be able to have that, that thought process and not rely upon the training academy. Look, I mean, there's always a disconnect that happens between the training academy and when they come out to the field. You know, whether it is 
hey, I'm, I'm in the all, you know, like Doug. I mean, he's a captain in the field. All right, well, do you know what they train in Purby School? Well, he does because he was at the Rock previously. But you may not even know what they, they train on. So there has to be that, that, that correlation that happens there and understand that, hey, maybe they're just getting the basic level building blocks foundation of training so they can recognize what a ladder is versus, you know, a hook. Okay, great. Now, what's my responsibility as a small unit leader? Because a small unit leader is so essential to our success. Uh, and what that small unit leader is doing in that firehouse every single day about building that mastery, man, I can tell you, James, every time I pull up on a fire ground, I can tell you what companies train and which ones don't. It is so easily to recognize. Like, even if a, a guy has a bad day, you can tell they train him. You can see it in their actions. You can see in the way that they operate as a team. You can see how fluid they are, how effective, how efficient they are. And then if they do screw up, you see how tough they are on themselves because they set this high bar of ex expectations for themselves. And all that comes back to how they train, how they drill, and how they prepare themselves for this event. Beautiful. Thank you for both those answers. They're amazing. Um, I, one area that I think is also was absolutely present in Anaheim was the senior man. And there were many men and women that were perfectly happy. And this would have been me had I stayed past 14 years. Um, they were perfectly happy in the firefighter position. And I had Al Benjamin rescue one on the show and, you know, the epitome of the senior man. Uh, that's, that's something that I see as threatened in a lot of departments by the rush to promote because of the financial element. So how do we foster that pride in the firefighter position and also the mentorship of that role versus kids today, millennials, some of the bullshit that I hear from some of these mouths? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. That's that one, man. You solve all the problems in the world. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> all right. Next question. <laughs> uh, you want to go first or you want me to? Yeah, you go first. I, I need to think about this one. <laughs> it's a tough one, right, man? Like you're we're paramilitary, right? So on the military side is you, you got to progress up through the ranks. If you don't, you get out. Um, but we're not really military. So, you know, how do you find that balance? And I think, and, and Doug can obviously, because his organization does a, uh, a greater job of having people who stay in those roles for extremely long periods of time as your previous interview uh, you talked about. But I think a big part of that is too, is it's understanding as leaders, right? You know, the Peter principle. When has someone gotten past the highest level of incompetence? And having that honest conversation with them. You know, I see it with chief officers a lot of times. Guys who are captains, who are fantastic, fantastic tacticians. They get to the chief level, and they can't transition to strategy. And so they're just micromanaging the incident all day long because that's what they're comfortable with. Can they be coached and mentored to that new role? Or are they better served just staying as a captain because you are so good at that position and you are so effective at that position? Um, so I think a lot of that comes down to is, is leaders, what kind of conversation are you having with your personnel? And are you giving them a pathway? Are you having the uncomfortable conversation with them that may not be that uncomfortable? To say, hey, man, you are tremendous as a firefighter. I think you're ready to progress to be a company officer. Or, hey, I think you need a couple more years at this position. I think you need to go to another company, maybe get away from the single engine house and go to a multifunction house and kind of open your, your horizons. Um, but it is it is difficult because it's such a personal decision to what you talk about. Hey, I, you know, I decided to have 12 kids. I can't do it on a firefighter salary. 
<laughs> okay, you got to do what you got to do. And it's a, it's a difficult balance, I think. But I think that the, the key element to that for people to be successful is us as leaders having those conversations with them and having that honest conversation about one, you know, you think about it as a coach, like, you know, my job as a coach is not to tell you what you're going to do. Let me ask you what you want to do. What do you want to achieve to do? What do you aspire to be? I want to be the chief of the fire department. Okay, probably not going to happen. <laughs> but you might be pretty good at this, and maybe it'll open up our further opportunities for you. Or, hey, I just want to be a fantastic driver. I want to be a, a, an awesome ladder truck driver. Okay. What are you doing to get to that path? Uh, and I think, you know, that, that's, a, you know, my take on it, because I know Doug will have more when it comes to how they do with a senior man in their organization. But when I look at our senior firefighters and company officers, they have recognized that they don't want that next thing. They're not driven by ego. They're comfortable where they are financially, but they they know. And what it comes down to, and I, I, I get the opportunity a lot of times at these retirement uh, gigs or when we're giving acknowledgments to people for years of service is that, at the end of the day, no one cares about the accolades hanging off the left breast of your class A's. What they care about is impact. They care about the impact you have. They're not going to talk about, you know, Doug had all these, you know, wars. could care less. They care about impact. And so when people recognize that, where can I have the greatest impact? You might have the greatest impact as being that senior firefighter that people want to work with because they know you're going to invest them. You're going to make them better. And I go back to the guy I gave acknowledgments to in our book, Andy Liebno. He was a uh, lieutenant. He's still a firefighter in another organization. And I think he might be a lieutenant now. That guy had a tremendous impact on my career because he had mastery in his job and he had an impact and he invested in people around him to make them better. And that's a huge part, I think, of that senior firefighter position if you're in it. Doug? Yeah, I... uh... I had the opportunity to work uh, with Al Benjamin and Joel Kanansky and a, and a couple of the guys in Rescue One for a couple tours when I was a fireman. And, and I, I always enjoyed working there because I love to just watch them work. Um, and it wasn't really the physical part of it, but just watch them work the room, the crowd, uh, the officers, the other firefighters on, on the, on the team. And I, and I think, you know, Dan, the word you said was impact. And, and I think that's 100% spot on is that, you know, what, what does every, every, every fireman who's ever on the job, whether you're a chief officer or whatever, what do you want to be known as? Well, you, they, want, you, they want people to say that at the end of the day, they, uh, he, Doug was a good fireman. Dan was a good fireman. And, uh, and, and, and that puts the job first, right? That kind of puts the job of a fireman before yourself as the individual. And, you know, when it comes to the senior man, probably one of the most uh, revered positions uh, in the New York City Fire Department, more so than chief or, uh, you know, sometimes more than the officer, um, that comes from respect. And I, and I was very lucky to have uh, a great bunch of senior men in all the companies that I worked in. Um, and they led by example and they knew their role. And they knew the impact that they were having on the company. Um, you know, listen, uh, officers come and go, right? Um, I would say more, more often than not, as you, as you mentioned, there, there is uh, people getting promoted. Um, the officers kind of move. Uh, and yes, even the members in the company get promoted and move out. But there's always somebody who's staying around to kind of foster the next generation within, within the firehouse 
uh, and that's usually the senior man, right? And he has he has some henchmen, right? He has some people who uh, are not are not happy unless they're unhappy, and they're the enforcers, right? And they they hey, don't go to the senior man with this. We're going to handle this right here and now, and 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 the dichotomy in the firehouse of just the the, the professionals who who work so hard to maintain um, the, the, the history and the traditions and the reputation of each individual company is just unmatched. Uh, and, and I think the, the senior, the senior firefighter, you know, sets the tone. He wants to make sure that the, the company continues to look good uh, and continues to keep that um, positive image uh, in the battalion or in the division or across the job. Um, and I think that that's, I don't think it's really going anywhere. Um, I, I just think that sometimes maybe the next generation of, of people, again, like we say it's, oh, it's them, it's them, it's them. You know, I can remember being a young fireman and coming into my firehouse and some of the senior, not the, the senior men, but the senior guys saying, ah, kid, you know, you missed it. The best days of this job are behind us. You know, the job sucks now, blah, 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 blah. It's not what it used to be. And, you know, I kind of had a conversation with my dad and he goes, yeah, you know what? Same thing happened to me when I got there in 1968. They said, hey, kid, the job's not the same as it was. This job sucks. You know, blah, 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 blah. It, it, it's the same circus, different clowns. And, and the cycle just repeats itself over and over again. But at the end of the day, the reputation of the company, um, the expectations of the company officers and the senior firefighters ring true. Um, and uh, again, while the next generation is here now. They're in your firehouse. They will be your next senior men. They will be your next lieutenants and captains and chiefs. So if you have an issue, work it out now because your, your time is limited. As I mentioned before, it is a finite time where we can make and have that impact. And your time to make that impact is now. You know, you got to step up, as my friend Frank would say. Got to step up. You got to do you got to do the uncomfortable at times. But you, there's also times when you can do the comfortable. And let people know when they when they're uh, doing a great job. You know, do we have to like you know give out all the, an award for this and award for that? Sometimes just you know the senior firefighter or or the officer coming and saying, "Hey, you did a great job back there. Thank you," or "Thank you for helping in the office or helping uh, inspire the, uh, a, a younger firefighter who might need some motivation." Right? Give them autonomy, set expectations, give inspiration. And, and, and let people do what they need to do. Give them a job to do and let them do it. Don't micromanage every facet of what you've just told them what to do. Give them the, give them the ability to, to have some independent thought. Because again, pretty soon down the road, they're either going to be getting promoted or they're going to be in leadership positions in the firehouse itself. Beautiful. Two amazing perspectives. So thank you both. Um, when it comes to, you know, obviously the senior man and some of the things we talked about, you know, training and you know, ownership are very, very key areas. I know yesterday um, was the anniversary of Black Sunday in, in New York. Um, you know, we've had multiple uh, line of duty deaths here in Orange County. Um, let me see. It was uh, Mark Benj and Todd Aldridge were Orange County, and uh, there was a commercial T-shirt shop. There ended up being a ceiling collapse. They had all this stuff stored. It was like zero, you know, smoke in the the shop level, and everything came down, killed two of them. One guy was able to smash his way out. Um, but the line of duty deaths are incredibly tragic. But the only thing positive we can pull out from them are the lessons learned. So. With all the kind of you know training that you do and a lot of the line of duty deaths that you study, 
I'd love to just pull a few stories and some takeaways uh, that might be useful to the people listening. Well, yes, obviously, you know, yesterday being the anniversary of the Black Sunday fire, um, you know, what can I say about that fire? Wow. Uh, you know, Brendan Cawley is a, is a personal friend of mine and, you know, he comes in and talks to Proby School, letting them know about that day and about the brave actions those men took um, and about the, the recovery, about uh, the tragedy, um, so many different facets uh, he gets to share with those probationary firefighters as they sit through their class. Um, the biggest thing that kind of came out of those un- that unfortunate tragedy was our, our PSS system, right? Our, our bailout system, if you will. Um, and again, you know, a lot of times when we go back in our history and our department's history and many fire departments history, you know, from tragedy comes innovation from tragedy comes triumph from tragedy comes rebirth and regrowth. Um, and I think from, from a great many of our, our line of duty deaths, things have changed, um, for the better for the organization. And, you know, for me personally, I know that that, that bailout system that we have, um, is a constant reminder on all of our bodies, uh, about where that came from. Um, and, you know, quite readily we drill and discuss that and, and discuss, you know, we have many similar options, uh, similar buildings to, to um, that particular fire in the Bronx uh, where we could find ourselves in similar situations. So I think we always kind of discuss and talk about that and, and honor those um, who have come before us. Right. I think that's a key proponent is to never let someone's significant injury or, or God forbid their, their death go without making some positive change to try to prevent it from happening again. We can't, we can't always prevent things from happening, right? We can do everything right and it still have a tragic outcome. But after that tragic outcome, let's, let's dissect it and let's discuss it and let's try to make some positive change so that we can try to mitigate the chances of that from happening again. And James, I think you hit the crux of, uh, of what Doug and I, uh, why we did this, why we did 25 survive. Um, and, and what the catalyst was is that, We continue to see the reports, right? And you want to acknowledge the sacrifice, but you've got to learn and grow from what those brother and sister firefighters faced. And it's not armchair quarterback. You know, hindsight's so unfair. I can sit in my climate controlled office and look at this report and go, oh, that would never happen. Now, man, you're trying to make calculated decisions in a highly chaotic environment. And we're, we act like we're surprised when it happens. So we see this commonality. And, and what was frustrating, uh, and Doug and I talk about this often, is like you know, when I can walk around, and whether it's my own department or when we're teaching and say names like Kyle Wilson or Brett Tarver or Cherry Road, and people look at you blindly, something's missing. And are they bad firefighters? Are they dumb? No, they're not. The platform's missing. You know, the platform for us to be able to understand what this impact has on them. Like for us, you know, Cherry Road. Cherry Road was a uh, tremendous fire. The busiest company in the country suffered this you know, multiple line of duty death. And what do we learn from it? Well, some people just say, oh, the bad things can happen to really good companies. No, there's, there's things we can learn from that, right? That these guys faced a basement fire, come up the stairs at them at 18 miles per hour. Fire doesn't discriminate, doesn't care that you're the busiest company. That is stuck in my head for years. Or Kyle Wilson, which was in Prince William, which is south of where I am. Wind-driven fires in a residential occupancy? 
We never, we never really thought about that. But every time I go to work and I look and see if the weather is above 10 miles per hour, that thought process is in my head. Paying warehouse, right? Years and years ago, taught us about crew resource management. Stop telling your probies to just shut up and not say a word. If they see something, interject. You know, we're all one tribe when we're going to this fire because, again, I come back to the fire always gets a vote. And so this is what really motivated us was to look at these reports and why are we continuing to repeat the same mistakes or errors on the fire ground? Is it the policies? Is it human error? Is it, what, is it training? What is it that is lacking that we continue to do it? And one of those key elements is that we just don't take the time to read these reports. We don't take the time to dig into it and look at it from the perspective of brothers and sisters. If, I, if this happened today at three o'clock in the morning, would I do the same exact thing? And if the answer is yes, okay, then you know, you know what work you have to do. Let's dissect this and figure out what everything that they faced and what can we train on and drill on to make sure that we face that same thing. So if that's, date myself, if that slide is in your slide carousel up here, you go, ah, I've seen this before. I recognize this. I may not have been at that fire, but I remember reading about this and I remember what the outcome was and I need to do something different. And yeah, obviously you can't speak for those who are dead, but I would think every person who died in line of duty, if they could think like what happened to me would stop that from happening to someone else, man, there, there's nothing better than that, right? Is that, you know, the sacrifice I made now has led to us never doing that again and someone getting better and better and developing that mastery. And so it, it is, I mean, like you, and when you read these reports, looking at them in the right perspective, not the armchair quarterback, not go, I can't believe they did that. Man, it's unbelievable what we expect of a person to do when they're in a highly chaotic environment with their heart rate skyrocketing and think they're going to make sound decision-making every single time. They're still human. They're still humans. So how do we take that information and make ourselves better? It's by reading those reports, remember the, the sacrifice they made, and, and using that to make us better every single day. Now, what about near-miss reports? Um, I, I hold Anaheim on a, on a pedestal, but one of the things they weren't good at, I think maybe because they were revered, was owning no their own near-miss. Yeah. No one's good at it. It's too much bravado, right? You, we don't do enough of it. Yeah, everyone knows about who died. Think about how many times we, we have accolades for when things go really well. <laughs> like, hey, we had this tremendous save. Uh, but that's what your job is. You just go do it. No, I mean, like, uh, and Gordon Graham does a great job of this, right? Talking about, you know, our inability to look at, or you, you see the dichotomy between us, police, fire, military, and aviation. You think there's a pilot who doesn't know what Sollenberger did? Who hasn't learned about how to land a plane in the Hudson? 100%. Now, you could go to any firehouse and ask them about any any line of duty death, and you might get like, who? It might be a huge issue to you, like with Doug, with Black Sunday. I bet you could walk in a lot of firehouses and go, what's Black Sunday? I don't understand what you're talking about. And now you know the challenges. So, yeah, you're absolutely right, man. Like, we don't do enough when it, with the near misses and mishaps to say, hey, we got to dig deeper into these and look at these. And go, well, we were really close because we all too often do that all the time. Is that, I mean, I have not been to a fire yet where I walked out and said, 100%. Didn't do anything wrong. I'm trying to, I'm, <laughs> I'm shooting for 20. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you just, you, you're, I mean, Doug always uses the analogy like you used to be able to sweep things under the carpet, but you can't do that anymore. And th those days are gone. So, Doug, 
Yes. <laughs> Anything to add? <laughs> uh, no, man. Circling back, I mean, you know, we owe it to those who have gone before us to pass their legacies on. I mean, that whether it's, um, uh, you know, a catastrophic uh, line of duty death, whether it's a brother or sister who passes away from occupational cancer, disease, whatever the case may be, it, it, it's on us to pass those legacies along, right? And, and to ensure that their sacrifices are not, uh, are not done in, they're not in vain, right? That we can remember them, that we can make positive changes for ourselves personally, that we can make positive changes for our company and for our department. I think that's, uh, I think that's we, we owe that to them. And, and God forbid something was to happen to us I would hope that they would pay that forward, you know, and, and, and I think that's, you know, we do a lot of laughing. We, we have a lot of good times. We have a lot of bad times. Um, and in the worst of times, we have to get together and, and, and circle the wagons and, and do the right things for our families uh, and for those who have gone before us. Absolutely. Well, Dan, before we would start recording, you were telling me about um, what may well be a line of duty death occurring right now as we speak in in Baltimore. Um, you know, we've had the double police fatality in NYPD. We've had some horrendous multi-family fatalities in Philadelphia and New York, and you know, so you're thinking about the responders and the families of of all those incidents. An area that, you know, as you guys know, I'm very passionate about is the mental health side too. And what we see is just a tiny piece of the pie of what truly contributes to sleep deprivation, there's organizational stress, there's childhood trauma, there's all these other areas. But, um, you know, I'll start with you, Doug, this time seeing as so much has happened in your city. What are you seeing as far as in, in your whole department, mental health and, you know, and, and what are some of the things that we can do to keep pushing the needle on, on raising the bar on the area because we're just continuing to, to lose people through, you know, suicide and overdoses and, and alcoholism and other areas. Well, um, again, we have to be each other's keeper, right? We have to look out for our brothers and sisters at the kitchen table. And I think a lot of times that's where we can try to um, notice uh, a problem or, or situation or, or a, an uncomfortable a moment happening where we can keep an eye on each other. Uh, again, our department has a, has a fantastic counseling unit um, that, that does help um, guide people through uh, some of the, the, tra- the tra- tragedies that we may face and some of the difficult times that we may have. And whether that's at home or if that's uh, related to on the job, you know, they can help get you, get you the help that, that's needed. But by the time, I mean, they're not going to notice that. Yes, they'll notice it when you come to see them, but someone's got to get them in the door. And by and large, that's each and every one of us at the table. Um, And, you know, I think we have to do our due diligence, especially when our companies or our our people are going through tough times, you know, to kind of keep an eye on that. And and as as a company officer or as the senior firefighters or, or even as the junior guy, you know, you got, if you see something, say something, right. That old adage from the, uh, from the subway, if you see something that doesn't look right, you know, try to address it with that person. Unfortunately, I think we all probably know uh, far too many people who, who didn't get the opportunity to, to reach out and, and try to 
um, battle those demons and have somebody help them battle those demons in their own minds, um, you know, with suicide. Um, but it starts, I think, at the kitchen table. And, and again, you know, I find myself to be very fortunate where firehouses and, and, and companies that I worked in, you know, the guys always looked out for each other. And I know it's a little bit different depending on where you work, you know, what, you know, you have A, B and C shifts and, and maybe, you know, you don't really see everybody at the same time or, you know, you, you see each other for a couple of minutes while exchanging information. So that, that can be more challenging. Um, but, you know, if, if it's you, you know, and you know, you're going through a tough time, you, you got, you got to, you, you got to go out and get out and get some help. Right. And whether that's just getting somebody uh, a peer involved or whether that's seeking uh, some professional advice, um, you, you got to do it, right? Uh, I think that that mental health is is something that you know has always plagued um, public safety workers, whether it's police, fire, EMS, dispatchers, etc. You know, it, it's always been a constant. You know, we routinely find ourselves in situations that are just not routine, um, and that can put a lot of uh, uh, stress on yourself and a lot of stress that you can bring home, um, to your families. Uh, you know, my uncle, Jeff, Jeff Mitchell, one of the pioneers of critical incident stress debriefing and whether you buy that model or you like that model of, of peer interaction or, or helping yourself help others. I mean, there's lots of different, you know, there's lots of ways to skin a cat, right? The, the, you, whatever works for you, it works for you, but, but get out there, talk about it. Um, make sure that you are getting the help that you need. But again, I think, you know, short, you know, short view, um, you know, reach out if you need help, keep your eye on your brothers and sisters at the kitchen table and, uh, you know, provide a helping hand, find out what resources that you may be able to pass on to them uh, and, and get them the help that they need and be there. Right. I think a lot of times it's just, it's just be there and be a voice and, and be, be available um, and be, 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 you know, there is no better family uh, with the exception of your one at home. I mean, maybe in some cases you one at the firehouse is better than your one at home, but you know, uh, and that's okay too. Uh, but there is no bigger family than, than the fire department. And, and I'm quite sure it's the same way, whether you're in an EMS agency or, or a police department, you know, we're here to take care of our people, right? Because our people is what helps us attain our goals of accomplishing the mission. And, you know, we're all in this together. We all have a, a big part in it. And when a team member is not up to par, it affects the whole team. So, you know, just again, just trying to, to keep an eye on your people and make sure everyone's uh, up to snuff and, and, and ready to go and in the right mindset because you know, mindset's a big part of, of our ability to perform our actions. And just to add on what Doug said, because you hit all the really key elements, I think, you know, from the leadership perspective, especially for the small unit leader, like a position like Doug's as a captain, uh, it's so essential you know your people. Uh, I mean, just to really know your people, because at the end of the day, I mean, this is one of the challenges I would give to our officer development schools is that you should be able to, I mean, as morbid as it sounds, to write the eulogy for every one of your people, which means that you know them so well. You know if they're married, if they have kids, you know, that who they are, what their, their hobbies are, uh, because you know them. And if you know your people, then you're more in tune to recognize when something's off uh, and to be able to you know, do the one thing you should never do, which is ignore it. Like, ah, I'll get over it. Now, take, take the two seconds, and maybe that person is just looking for you to say, hey, man, you okay? Is everything okay? 
Uh, and, you know, they might just open up. Uh, and I think, you know, when we, we, we've talked a lot about today about drilling, right? Um, drill for these type of things. And I'll give you an example. So we were with my shift uh, with the battalion chiefs. We were talking the other day. We were talking about the fire that they had in the Bronx. And there's no use in us armchair quarterbacking the strategy and tactics. It was more, hey, would this ha- could this happen here? Yes, it could. What would we do? And then the last question was, what would you do as a chief officer at the culmination or the termination of this incident when you have these 60, 80, 100 firefighters who have all just dealt with this incredibly mentally taxing incident of seeing 30, 60, 100 people all injured, 17 dead, uh, multiple unconscious? What would you do as the incident commander? What would you do as a chief? How would you handle that mental side of it? And so you start to prepare yourself for, we, we, we always train on the strategy and tactics, but what about you as a leader to be able to handle that mental part? Uh, and how do you then capture that? Uh, and knowing that sometimes like for us to be really, really good at what we want to do um, and, and understand decision-making in our chaotic environment is sometimes you got to have the ability to pull yourself back and go, I don't have the tools to handle this. So who do I call to help me? Uh, and if you don't have those tools, I mean, I mean, my Doug's department, my department, we're very fortunate that one phone call, one radio transmission, I have mental health professionals there. But if you work in a place that doesn't have that, now's the time before the incident happens. Say, if I did have this, what other jurisdiction could I call? What hospital could I call and see if they can provide this service and start the train and drill for it? Because when we talk about mission first, people always, that people always, this is what we're talking about. You need these people every single day for us to accomplish a mission. So we have to take care of them and taking care of them is not just preparing them for the strategy and tactic portion of it, but taking care of them on the mental aspect to be able to know when you, you have an issue in which you need help and you're not the person to be able to handle it, but you've recognized the situation and just let it call for a second alarm. You call for the additional alarm of people to come help with the mental, mental impact of it. Yeah, that's a, an amazing perspective. And it reminds me of um, the Orlando Fire Department. They've got a, a peer support group that was started independently of the actual department, ironically. Um, but they were assembled right before the pulse shooting. So they were able to immediately go. And then there's a, a collaborative down in, in Florida that um, was put together and um, the Parkland shooting, the high school in South Florida, mm-hmm. same thing. They already had those kind of ducks in a row prior to that event so it was incredibly successful but those are two anomalies i think compared to a lot of departments so that's a great piece of advice to really start thinking about the human operational strategy alongside the actual firefight and rems element too yeah brilliant all right well then one area one more area before we go and talk about the book and, and your training group um that doesn't really get a lot of conversation one area that I see a lot of people struggle, one area I think that really expresses a lot of the physical ill health of our profession are retirees. And a lot of us identify as the cop, the firefighter, the soldier. And so when that bay door comes down for the last time, there's a lot of lost tribe, loss of purpose. Um, and I think a lot of people struggle. Now, I know, for example, in FDNY, some of the retirees work in um, Friends of Firefighters with Nancy Carbone. What are your... Do either of your departments have a kind of system or philosophy of keeping retirees in the fray? Um, it's a huge amount of knowledge that are walking out the door each time. Um, and if not, you know, what areas can we do better with that part of the job? 
Well, uh, our retirees are our, you know, our, our, our retirees are the tie back to the past, right? And we can't move forward without remembering our past, right? History is extremely important in our profession. And uh, kind of tying back to the stories I mentioned before, we, we need those stories. We need those people to tie us back to ensure that the history of our companies and of our department is not lost. Now, there are many retirees who, once they are out, they are out. And they don't like coming back. They don't want to come back. And I respect that. But I always try to tell them and make it really apparent that not only do we want them back, but we need them back. Because we need to hear those firsthand stories about fires and who they worked with and the captains that they had and the, what the company looked like and to bring their scrapbooks with the pictures from fires and, and things like that. You know, bring those things back to share with this next generation of guys. A lot of times they feel like, you know, once they've been out, you know, four, five, eight, you know, years, they, they feel like they don't really know the new guys anymore. And they don't. But you know what? That's because they don't come by. <laughs> so you know, it's a self, self. Uh, it, it's a self-professing. What's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, prophecy. Yeah, yeah. It's a self-fulfilling. It just, self-fulfilling prof- prophecy. Whereas if you don't come and they they don't know you, you're not going to know them either. So come around, show up, tell us the stories, and we have plenty. Uh, you know, in the New York City Fire Department, we have plenty of gatherings. Uh, and the retirees are always not only encouraged, but they're revered. Uh, and when we don't see uh, retirees, we reach out to them. And we have calling posts that let everybody know about what's going on. And we see them several, several times a year um, and impart that. And they come by the firehouse. We encourage them to come by and, and sit down and have a meal and, and to just kind of let us know how they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. So I think on our department, again, maybe because of some of the history and traditions moving, you know, uh, carrying forth from generation to generation, our retirees are extremely uh, held in high regard and are welcome back anytime day or night. Um, and, and we need that and we, and we have to have that. And that's, uh, you know, again, the, the lessons that they have learned, many of which we will, you know, uh, relive again. And the twin parks tragedy, uh, happened uh, only a, maybe a mile uh, from where the Happy Land Social Club fire was. The companies responded to those same events, uh, you know, years apart uh, from 1990 to, to, to this past uh, uh, month. Um, you know, again, those emotions uh, that they felt uh, that were probably brought right back when they saw uh, some of the uh, footage from um, the fire uh, that was recent. Um, so again, we had retirees who came to the firehouse after watching that on TV and just came and sat with us, uh, you know, and, and explained some of the things that they had gone through over the courses of their career. They checked in, um, and we do that routinely with our retirees. They are certainly, uh, our connection to the past. Right. And, and again, they put us on a good path to the future. 
Yeah, I mean, and James, you make an excellent point, and I've always admired what Doug's department does, and I think we struggle with it, and we're always looking for solutions because the vast majority, much like Doug's department, the vast majority of our people do not live in the county. Uh, they, they live further away. They live in different states. Um, so they're surely not going to move into the county when they retire. Um, and so we have a geographic separation. So we have retirement associations that, that kind of work with that to, to keep them connected, connected to what we're doing as an organization. I mean, social media, I think, has helped that tremendously. Um, you know, and fortunately, in our system, we have this drop, the deferred retirement, which essentially says, hey, I'm going to retire this day, but you're here for another three years so we can continue to build and, and, and get that influence and knowledge from the people who are leaving. But I think the, the key element and, and um, that you kind of touched on, I think it's important for people who are getting to the point of where they might think they're going to be retiring and really should be doing this long before you ever get to that point, is understand is that do not let this job define who you are. I mean, I love the fact where I live, no one really knows I'm Deputy Chief Dan Shaw. They could care less. Uh, and that's a fantastic fact I love because it just keeps you humble. You're not that big of a deal. Uh, you go to work and you have a responsibility what you do, but I'd rather be defined as a father and a husband than before when I'm a deputy chief in a position. Uh, but I think as you do move, I mean, you, the beauty of this job is the day you take the oath, you get a second family. You don't walk away from families. So it, it really is difficult for someone. It's easy for me to say, don't let this define you. But when you do this tough job for so long and you're so committed doing dangerous things, it does define you in a sense. So when you are getting ready to, hey, look, say this is, I'm going to close this chapter, find your next mission. And, and I see that's what the biggest issue is people don't have a next mission. We are mission-based in what we do. And it doesn't have to be fire department related. Just find your next passion, next mission, something you can dedicate yourself to with the same vigor you did with this job and find that. Because the novelty of say, I'm going to sit home and just watch TV. No, you're not. You're going to sit home and die. You're going to sit there and think about all the things you, 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 you miss and all the things you're not doing anymore and all the horrible calls you ran. You're going to think about all that. Find the next mission. Diversify who you are so you're not just singularly focused by what you do in the fire department. Well, the thing I've seen as well is that when people, whether it's military or first responders, when they've gone into, say, banking or you know selling houses or something, there seems to be an element where they're not fulfilled. And I think people forget there are many, many ways to serve. And your business that you create could be one that's making someone's life better, whether you're a fitness trainer or you know a yogi or whatever it ends up being. But we do have such an incredible skill set. But I think as with the military, you tend to think, well, you know, I just pulled hose through ladders and dragged people out of burning buildings. How am I going to apply that to the real world? Well, you just have to use a little bit of imagination and reinvent yourself. You have an incredible skill set where someone picked up a phone and pushed three numbers and you and your crew showed up and had to mitigate their worst fucking day they've ever had. <laughs> That's a pretty powerful skill set. So just understanding that you, the value that you have transitioning out of this, this, uh, profession. And like you said, finding that next tribe not disregarding the previous tribe but finding another community so you feel fulfilled and finding another purpose so you can apply those skills in whatever form it becomes next so that when you wake up that next day you're still as excited as you were when you used to go to the firehouse yeah amen to that all right well speaking of purpose and second tribe um i know you guys have traditions trainings let's talk about that first tell me about the classes that you offer and then how people can find you online 
Okay. Um, so we've been around for a good amount of time. Uh, and we've, we've, we've kind of stuck to what our mantra was when we started this. Pete Lund, um, who is a decorated New York City firefighter, uh, was uh, coming down to uh, College Park, Maryland, for looking for a place for his son to go to school and started a relationship with our, our, our mutual friend, Ricky Riley, who at the time was the chief of Kentland Fire Department, which is in PG County, a notably busy place. And they just struck up a conversation and, and Pete had this desire to want to be able to bridge the gap between certification training and what we really do and what happens in that, in that, that, that gray space, you know, where are people getting knowledge, skills, tips, techniques to be able to get better and better at their job other than just picking up a book they have to pay for like a certification book. Um, so we started as, Hey, we're, we don't certify in anything, but We'll come and share with you the experiences and knowledge from a New York City lieutenant, a New York City captain. Um, at the time, I was a driver in Fairfax, and, and Ricky was a firefighter. And just a collection of all these different people from the different departments who have a passion to want to share what they know and know that they have a responsibility to take their knowledge and experience and give that to everyone else who doesn't have it. So we started as RIT classes. Um, and that was almost 20 years ago of uh, just doing a rig class down in Bethany Beach, Delaware. And it was just sharing our experiences. And so the beauty of what we get to do is that if a client calls us and says, hey, we'd love to have a class on. Um, I think one of the classes we did was a truck company class for a place that had no trucks. OK, uh, we can put something together for you. Uh, because I can tell you coming from a background where I taught for an institution that was all certification based. I love the institution, but I couldn't stand teaching just certification. Like you weren't allowed to, to, to train on, hey, this is why I carry what I carry in my pockets, because my experience has taught me this. My mentors have taught me this. And so we uh, continue to can teach uh, that same way. I mean, Doug and I do a lot of uh, 25 Survive, a lot of leadership, a lot of first do operations, just things we're really passionate about that we know, hey, we want to do this class because we learn from our mistakes and we learn from our successes, we know we're not the only ones who are in the same boat. So how do we share this with people who don't run as many calls, who don't have a training staff, who don't have the mentors that we've been open to? Um, so it's, it's been a great ride and we continue to love it every single day. I mean, our, our training cadre is guys from New York, uh, from Wichita, from uh, Phil, Baltimore, uh, DC, Pittsburgh, yeah, Pittsburgh. all over the place, all different uh, things. What you got, Doug? No, I, I think, again, we, we, we did at one point discuss diversity and, you know, the diversity of our instructors is our company's strength, I believe. Uh, again, I kind of came into the fold uh, a little later in the game than with Pete, Dan, Ricky, and a few of our other mentors who, who started the company. But it's never been about us as individuals. It's been us about a message. And, and the message is preparedness. And I spent, uh, you know, Many years in uh, in Boy Scouts and the scouting program, uh, and I know it's obviously uh, changed a little bit. Uh, it's it's diversified and it, it's become a little bit different animal than than it, than it once was. Perhaps when I was involved in it, but their common core mantra was what: be prepared. And be prepared is is basically has has translated into our company's slogan as being combat ready. And that was Pete Lund's mantra: was that you know we have to be ready for the biggest fire of our career until we hear otherwise. And that's where it started. And, you know, 
I don't think we recognize that or realize the importance of it until we really got some time on the job. And when we started to see, you know, some complacency uh, creep in uh, to ourselves and, and to our departments and to our companies. And we're like, wow, we, we got we to gotta knock the dust off of this. We got to scrape the rust off and get down back, bring back to, you know, iron sharpens iron here and talk about being ready, you know, because at any moment's notice, that run could come in that we talk about for the next two or three generations. Right. And, and that's the, that is the true reality is it, it just starts with one phone call. And, and that one phone call could be something that we talk about for, for generations to come. Well, I mean, the complacency kills, oh my God. complacency kills is a phrase that I use all the time as well. And I've, I've seen it, you know, that's kind of what we were talking about with the air packs earlier, you know, and there's been incidents in my career where fortunately it was with a crew that took it seriously, but I remember responding to what was supposed to be a car fire and it was a car fire. It was four cars in a carpool under a, um, I mean, a wooden apartment yeah. building that ended up being <laughs> a lot yeah, more. Multiple alarm, right. Exactly. So, you know, I love that philosophy of assuming, you know, expect the worst. And then if it's anything less than that, then you can de-escalate. But it's so much easier to de-escalate than it is to rise up. Yeah, 100%. I mean, and that's that's it, right? And that kind of goes along with the whole, you know, mental performance and, and building your skill set so that if you're, if you're ready for that five-year career and you get there and it's, uh, you know, a food on the stove, then it's a food on the stove. And you can take your SCBA off and put it on the floor. You can take your hood off and put it back in your pocket and you can, you know, turn off the gas behind the stove and that's that. But if we get there and it's out three windows, well, yeah, it, it came in as an odor of smoke. Well, where there's smoke, there's usually fire at some point. So, you know, being ready for that five-year career, because we all know, and we've all been there. If you have any time on the job, what, came in, what comes in as an automatic alarm nine times out of 10 is, is not a fire, but that one time, and whether it's one out of 10 or one out of a thousand, it's going to be one of those times. Which one is it? I don't know. Uh, you know, I have no idea which one it's going to be. So that's why we, we always kind of, kind of preach, uh, you know, being ready. And it changes the mentality, right? From when you arrive in a fire and go, oh my God, I can't believe it's truly on fire to, oh, it's on fire. We finally get to execute our skills. I'm looking forward to go execute the mission. I've been waiting for this for a long time. Uh, and you, you really can see the switch in a lot of people's mentality. And we know that you know, for as long as we've been around, as long as we've been teaching, is that everyone thinks the same. They just have different challenges. And, and Doug always says it when we were doing a class, like if you want to hear the, the FDNY way, the Fairfax way, you can't, you can't do what we do because you don't have the staffing. We show up with malicious. So, but we can tell you the key elements to it. So when you show up with four or six guys, you can do some of the same things. It just takes you longer to get to that point than it takes us. Absolutely. Well, another resource, obviously, is the book, 25 to Survive. So tell me, you know, what spurred you to write that? And then, again, give people an overview of what they can expect inside. Oh, man. That's, uh, so uh, facts, right? Every 63 seconds in the United States, we go to a residential building fire. So that means every 63 seconds in the United States, you get to choose the narrative of you're going to be a hero or a zero. And so when we take all that data and we look at it and we go, all right, we're going to look at the line of duty deaths. And we know in the line of duty deaths, every, every firefighter who dies in the line of duty is entitled to their PSOB, the public safety is all for benefit. But we really want to focus on when people are, are operating, doing the job, right? Forcing entry, stretching hose lines, doing searches. And they get in bad situations and they die. Uh, majority of those were occurring in residential buildings. And when we looked at these line of duty deaths, we saw a commonality. 
North, South, East, West, paid, volunteer, urban, suburban. There was this commonality. And many times uh, it, it was it was these basic fundamental skills. And so when you read the NIOSH reports and, and look, I've met these guys who do these guys do a tremendous job. It's a limited number of guys who are doing all these reports and they have a yeoman's effort to get done. But a lot of times, many of the things they offer are unachievable um, and they're very generic. And you, you and like, okay, hey, look, increase staffing. You need six on an engine. And I got one. I'm not going to get six. And so when Doug and I looked at this stuff, we said, hey, what can, what can we do to change this trend? I don't want to sit on the sidelines. We don't want to sit on the sidelines and just be observers to this. Let's try to change something because so often we just tell you, hey, here's the things that are wrong and we'll see you later not give you tangible things. So we wanted to look at 25 different things that uh, are, are common across all line of duty desks and residential buildings and say, yes, here's the issue, but here's a skill, a tip, a trick, a, a technique, something you can do in every firehouse, regardless if you're paid, volunteer, small or big, that will potentially change this trend. It will, it will stop that one domino from falling. And so it's basic fundamental skills that we start to shine the light on and say, look, if you refine yourself at each one of these and you develop mastery in each one of these positions, you now are part of that change. You now are, are, are potentially putting yourself in position for success instead of tragedy. Anything I missed, Doug? You know, this, this came out of uh, a PowerPoint presentation that, that Dan and I were giving. You know, the information that we share in the book and in our classes is our personal information, our personal experiences and the experiences of those mentors who inspired us. Um, Chief Bobby Holden was in the class. He said, man, I like that message. I like that story. I like what you said there. You got to write these things down. And Dan and I looked at each other. We're like, uh, no, we're, we're, we're firemen. We're not, <laughs> we're not authors. And he goes, yeah, I, I, I see that. He goes, but we have a team that will help you get there. And, um, while Dan and I would rather be crawling down hallways than sitting at kitchen tables behind computers. Um, again, the, the message and the inspiration um, kind of was born out of that kind of born out of those people who shared so much information and time with us as young firemen to keep us engaged, to keep us um, wanting to be better tomorrow than we were today. Um, that's kind of where it was born. And, and, and again, you know, um, one of the biggest compliments we've received was that, you know, hey, uh, I read something in your book. We found ourselves in this situation. I thought back to what I had read in your book and we executed it. And you know what? It worked. And it got my guys out of a jam. And I was like, well, that's it. I'm done. All, all, all the time, all the hours, all the edits. Like it's all worth it. It made it, it, made it all worthwhile. Uh, one person, one team, one thing. That's what it's all about. You know, it's not about Dan and I, uh, th this job and this fire service has given me, I mean, it's given me everything I ever had my, my childhood growing up, you know, um, uh, my, my young adulthood, um, uh, basically my, me being able to raise my entire family, this, this job has given me everything. Your for any chance, well, that's probably down at the bottom, but Doug. <laughs> <laughs> And, and even to that point, James, like you talk about it, like Doug and I talk about it, we tell people all the time, uh, look, you look at the book, you, you do the class, you find a drill that's better, let us know. The next version, we'll name it after you. 
We don't care, man. It's about getting the message out and sharing with more and more people. Because if we truly want to be these change agents and we want to take an invested interest in stopping the line of duty deaths as much as we can, because we know the fire gets a vote, then let's all be part of the one tribe. Absolutely. Well, just on the the knowledge sharing, just for a quick second before we, we kind of wrap up. One of the things I've observed now, having been here, you know, in this country for almost 20 years in the fire service for 14, was how siloed police, fire, EMS, county, city, you know, there's, there's so much ego in some of these places. Some of these, these organizations work incredibly well side by side. Police and fire Anaheim's a good example of that. But then I've had it where. I've been arguing with the dispatcher when the dotted line between the, you know, the two lanes in the road separates me and Orlando. And I'm just trying to get someone, cause I'm on an EMS vehicle to come send a suppression unit to put out the tree fire. It's going to burn down a, a, a trailer park behind me. So how do we start bringing all these, these organizations together and start reducing some of these silos and, and stop getting people to reinvent wheels when there are so many well-made wheels from different departments already that we can just knowledge share? Listen, we're, we are in the people business, right? We are in, we are all human beings and we are dealing with, with each other on, on a human level where we have to understand that ego and the me first principle should not apply. And I think that if we can make it as grassroots as possible, and you know whether it's inviting the, the cops to come over for a meal, uh, whether it's inviting the, dis- the fire company to come to the dispatch office to see the layout and what, how they handle their day-to-day interactions, you, you start to break down those barriers. You start to break down those silos and there's plenty of grain for everybody if we break down the silos, right? But if you keep it all in yours and I keep it all in mine and we're running low, well, we don't know that you've got a full silo over here. So I think that, you know, that communication and that, and that information sharing, if we can start at the lowest levels while also including, you know, those pings to the higher-ups to get them involved. And, you know, obviously Dan probably has some perspective from, from the, you know, the middle upper management level, from my level, I try to bring the troops together. I try to bring the local cop in for a cup of coffee or, or you know, always invites them in. Hey, you guys want to come back, you know, snowing out. You want to you come in and get warm for a couple minutes before you got to head back out on post. Just trying to, you know, incorporate at the lowest level. Um, but then again, pinging those, those, uh, those upper echelon people to let them know what's going on. And if you're meeting resistance to try to see where we can, Find, find people who are in those leadership positions who perhaps don't have that, those egos or that chip on their shoulder or who want to keep everything you know, to themselves. You know? They can look at that more global picture. Again, because we are providing, we are public servants. We are providing a service to people. And we are human beings just like they are human beings. And you know, what's important to the dispatchers may not be as important to the cops. What's as important for the cops may not be as important for the fire department. But in the end, to provide the best service for our people, we need to have our people on the same team working for that same goal. And, and JG, you hit the nail on the head, right? The, the only obstacle is the people. It's egos. You know, this is my county or this is my department. This is the way we do things. Uh, and I think the key, and, I, and again, I'm very fortunate with our work. You know, since 1975, we've had an automatic aid agreement between all the Northern Virginia fire departments that we operate underneath one manuals. Uh, we don't have different manuals. 
if I call 911, I might get a fire truck from this organization, this organization, and this organization, and they will be there all at the same exact time, all in the same message. I've been in plenty of fires where I'm the only chief from Fairfax with units from different jurisdictions, and there's no ego of like, well, no, you're not our chief. And I think the key to that is that what you end up doing is you get people around the table to the same point what Doug's talking about, and you put a name to a face, right? You put a name to a rank. You're not Chief X, Y, and Z. You're Dan, you're Doug, you're James. I can see who you are, right? And let's not focus on our differences. Let's focus on our similarities. Our similarities is the mission. And we're trying to accomplish that mission. So if we work together and bring all our resources and all our work together, guess what? We'll be a highly much more effective, more efficient, and even on the political side of it. What what does a politician care about? That when my constituents call 911, service shows up. No one has ever said, like, when they're dying, wait a minute, let me see your patch. Oh, no, 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 I don't want you to put my fire out. They could care less, man. Uh, And that's where I think the key is, like, what you do is you put a name to a face, you have those relationships, you put the ego aside, but you focus on your similarities and not your differences. Yes, you you have differences. You have staffing issues. All but yes, you do. But you know when you can capitalize on the benefit of working together collaboratively as a team, you'll be much more effective. Yeah, I think uh, the the presidents of the last few years could could learn from what you just said. Focusing on commonalities rather than differences, I think, would unify rather oh, than divide. <laughs> So it's like what you learn in first grade, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, basics. Like you said, back to basics. Well, Dan and Doug, I just want to say thank you so much. We've been chatting for two hours. Um, and, you know, like I said, well worth the wait. Um, your book is incredible. Thank you so much for sending it. Um, there's so much in there from, you know, again, brand new potential firefighter through to reminding the senior man and making sure that we're, you know, not missing anything that's kind of slipped from the mind a little bit. But I just want to thank you so much. Two incredibly powerful differing perspectives as far as you know where you're geographically standing and the type of department that you're in but absolutely invaluable for everyone listening so thank you so much for being so generous with your time today oh thank you absolute pleasure to be here with you